Welcome to Sustainable Horizons, where we take a deep dive into various sustainability topics and then talk with industry professionals who are working to solve those exact problems. We're your hosts, Taylor and Logan. Now let's learn how to face the future. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining us. Hello. Happy to be here. Paul Johnson is the Senior Director of Urban and Community Forestry at Sustainable Forestry Initiative, also known as SFI, and has been recognized as a true professional of arboriculture. How, how was my pronunciation on that? I've been practicing that one. That's good. Uh, it goes both ways. Arboriculture and arbor, arboriculture okay. used pretty interchangeably. All right. I'll, I'll go with ar- arboriculture. It feels, feels easier. So he's a true professional of arboriculture by ISA, and he received the Liam McSward's Current Achievement Award for Communication from NASF. He has been a state urban and community forestry program leader, radio talk show host, newspaper columnist, university extension, horticulturist, and adjunct professor, as well as a plant healthcare specialist. Now, my first question is, what haven't you done? (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving it. It, it, It's been a good career. I've had a chance (laughs) to do a lot of fun things. That's awesome. Also, just out of curiosity, what is a plant healthcare specialist? Because what I'm I'm picturing is someone's rushing a tree in in an ambulance and you're there in an operating room with a bunch (laughs) of scalpels. (laughs) Very close. More like a mobile veterinarian because we're going to the tree, of course. And we're dealing with entities that are multiple species. So mm. just because they're all trees doesn't mean that they're all like us, humans. So there's enough variation here. But when you start getting into all of the different types of trees, it can get really, really detailed. And a plant healthcare specialist is just that. It's the people that are helping others care for their trees and plants. So it's a matter of coming in, making sure that there's the right nutrition, that you are dealing with any issues that might come up, such as insects or disease problems, those kinds of things. And so back 20 years ago, it was cutting edge, helped start one of the first plant healthcare programs for a company that I worked for about 20 years ago. And the fun thing is with what we do in our world is to go back and see where those seeds that you have planted continue that company is still doing plant health care. So it's really cool stuff. Yeah, very cool. I have a quick question about that. Like, do you, I mean, I'm guessing it's mainly dealing with plants like in the outside natural environments so in people's like yards and things like that? Or were you Primarily, also mixing yes. in, yeah, house plants as well? But yeah, that makes sense. Very cool. Yeah, indoor plant care is its own specialty. <laughs> there, are, there are people that do that because it is an even more hostile environment from a, a humidity standpoint, some things like that. Not a lot of natural predators in most inside areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be pretty pretty interesting on its own. Really cool. So what got you into forestry as, as a whole? <laughs> I love to tell this story. So origin stories are so much fun. And in my case, it's all Brad Pitt's fault. <laughs> I was not expecting that. All right, I'm ready for this. (laughs) Not not directly, not directly, of course. But uh, you may have heard of the book and the movie, A River Runs Through It. So I was a National Merit Scholar, thought I was going to be a physicist, but the math program at OU had a better scholarship by like $500. So I declared as a math major an honors calc three 
first thing in the morning, my first semester of college, cured me of that. <laughs> so I started looking around and I grew up doing theater with my mom. Fine. And so I needed to get my uh, grade point up, we'll say, uh, in order to keep my scholarship. So I went to the theater program for a short period of time because I knew that I could thrive there, but I didn't want to do that long term. Theater and the arts can be kind of a cutthroat world in its own. Oh, yeah. And so I went and saw the movie A River Runs Through It. That movie is based in Missoula, Montana, in the short montage between when they are kids and when they are young men. There is a mention of forestry. Grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, absolutely loved the woods and the mountains, wanted to live in Colorado. And so that, that, spurred a little bit of thought. And over Christmas break, I was talking to my mom about this as an idea. She was at Oklahoma State University at that point in time where the forestry program is in Oklahoma. She was getting her master's degree in speech and theater. She said, well, let's go talk to them. So we went over, made an appointment, ended up sitting across the desk from this uh, kind of uh, shorter, rotund, very rosy-cheeked guy uh, who was the mensurationist. So the, the, the math, the measurements, and how to figure all those things out. Took in a copy of my transcript, and it's got stage makeup, costume construction, <laughs> ballet. And he looks up at me and says, do you know what you're trying to get yourself into? <laughs> I said, yes, I, I've spent my life outdoors. I've got a little bit of an idea. I had no idea, but I thought <laughs> I had an idea of what I was going to get myself into. And let me tell you, he said, well, if you transfer immediately, this was over Christmas break, if you transfer immediately, you can go to our summer camp, which Oklahoma State doesn't have a set location. And so they move it around. And that summer, it was going to be just outside of Missoula, Montana. No way. Perfect. The fates aligned. I don't know if it was kismet or just what, but I did. I went back to OU, broke my lease, withdrew from the school, applied, got into Oklahoma State, moved up there over Christmas break, and started with a timber harvesting class at 7 o'clock in the morning <laughs> with that professor who would literally close and lock the door at seven o'clock. Oh, he was oh, like, wow. everybody's got to be on time. And, and, and just absolutely loved it. Went to summer camp that summer, had a summer fling, which uh, we are about to celebrate 30 years of marriage before too long. Oh my, I'm Congratulations. loving that. Congratulations. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> like I said, I love origin stories. And it just is kind of like this was meant to be. So I, I really am just tickled at the, <laughs> the life I've gotten to lead because of all of this. Wow. Well, th yeah, that is probably the coolest origin story I've heard in a really long time. That was that was amazing. I agree. Also, I, I feel you on the origin stories. If you ask me my favorite episode of any television show, it's always that like one episode where they did the big long flashbacks. Yeah, like, yep. Indeed. <laughs> So you really just caught the bug in forestry and then ran with it from there, right? 
Well, I did, except I tried to escape at one point in time. So we moved to Colorado, and my wife worked for the feds. I worked for the state. She didn't like cold weather. (laughs) And so she said, we're going home. You can come if you want. So we did move back to Oklahoma for a little while, got into commercial tree care. That's when I became a certified arborist, uh, started the plant health care program, those kinds of things. But I, I also love technology. And so I entered the Cisco Networking Academy because there were a lot more opportunities and higher dollars available. Mm-hmm. And also I had been very disappointed not to get a job that I really, really wanted. And then the same job in a different location in Oklahoma opened up. And I was already on the approved applicant list. So I just had to send an email and I knew who was going to be against me for that job, had some inside knowledge. And so I Mm -hmm. didn't think there was any chance in the world I was going to get it. So I just went and had a really fun job interview. (laughs) And lo and behold, they offered me the job. And so that's when I did the radio, the the newspaper column, because that was with Extension. And Mm -hmm. Cooperative Extension does a lot of things, including Master Gardener programs, some really fun things. Uh, And just fell in love with teaching and speaking, trying to be a little entertaining (laughs) to, to ease that education side of things. And so it really was. It was just an absolute fluke and has worked out really, really well. Again, kind of within that idea of it seems like it's just meant to be. Yeah. Clearly. Gosh, that's so fun. All right. So I'm going to ask you to dust off those teaching skills or, I mean, maybe not even dust off. You clearly still got them. So (laughs) people are often under the impression that we are facing rampant deforestation. So the solution is to just stop using all paper products. Anything that's paper is bad. Can you talk about the realities or at least kind of the regional nuances of deforestation, specifically in comparing something like the state of the Amazon rainforest to a region like the United States, where 56% of the forest are privately owned? Certainly. This is a really big topic and uh, adjacent to my specialty. So I, I'm going to kind of limit the, my comments a little bit in that trees are a renewable resource when properly managed. So there is no reason to give up wood products. I mean, whether it's toilet paper, which most people really appreciate, (laughs) or the wood that we build our homes and in many cases are building bigger and bigger buildings with, with cross-laminated timber, those kinds of things. It often is a more local or regional issue. There are absolutely parts of the world where deforestation is a problem. But if you take the south of the United States, and so you know that they they talk about the central part of the United States as the breadbasket because of all of the wheat and the vegetables and everything that's grown there. Well, we call the south the wood basket because we've been tracking for decades growth rates of trees versus harvest and those kinds of things. And we have regularly grown more wood than we have harvested year in and year out across the South. So we do not have a deforestation problem in the South in that way. We do have some conversion issues where as cities like the city of Houston, I live in Austin, Texas, as the city of Houston has grown and gotten bigger and bigger, 
there are areas that trans kind of uh, transform from what we think of as the woods or a forest into a more urban or suburban setting, which then leads me to my area of specialty, which is urban and community forestry. If we include trees and the environment in the planning, in the execution of our communities, we can maintain many of those values and benefits and minimize the detriments of converting from one type of forest to another type of forest. Fascinating. So I guess before we get into the details of that urban forestry, your title is Senior Director of Urban Community Forestry at Sustainable Forestry Initiative. Can you tell us what is Sustainable Forestry Initiative and explain why a standard setting body like SFI is so important? Absolutely. SFI, for over 25 years, has managed a forest management standard. And then over time, we've also added a fiber sourcing standard and a chain of custody standard. But the idea is that a standard setting body like SFI brings a sector together to get a diverse view of what does it mean to sustainably manage a forest, or in my case, an urban forest. And by doing that, you are able to set a roadmap or a recipe for organizations to work with in order to ensure that they are doing the things that need to be done. So we have the ISO standards, which talk about all sorts of things from aircraft mechanics all the way through different types of manufacturing, all those things. So our forest management standard is created and managed according to an ISO standard so that there is an accreditation body out there in the U.S., that's ANAB, and they are the ones that then kind of audit and review and accredit an organization that can go out and then audit, review the organization that's using the standard and be able to grant that certification. So SFI doesn't directly grant our certification. We manage the standard itself and then another body, so it's called third-party certification, so that they hire this other body that comes in and audits them and says, yes, you're doing really good here, you're meeting the standard here, and oh, you could do a little bit better here. And then on a regular annual basis, reviews that and says, oh yeah, you're still doing well here. And then every five years, it does a full audit to recertify to that standard. That leads me into kind of why I'm here. I was very, very gainfully employed with the state of Texas running the urban and community forestry program for the state. So Texas Forest Service, when I joined them 17, 18 years before I left, has always been part of the A&M system. But with a new chancellor, they wanted to do some rebranding. And so during my career, it became the Texas A&M Forest Service. UT doesn't have their own forest service. It's just one of a handful of states that the state forest service is a part of the university system rather than a, a, a different way of being a part of the state. So I was very, very happy there and had literally, I think this was the third resume I sent out in almost 18 years with that agency. 
But the reason was we have never had an urban and community forest standard. Even though we've been doing urban forestry in some areas for over 100 years, but as kind of called urban forestry, it's about a 40 to 50-year-old sector in terms of a, a, a coined term and really working on th- some things like that. And the U.S. Forest Service in 1990 and 1991 kind of codified urban and community forestry in the Farm Bill so that there is a federally supported program that the states utilize in order to do urban forestry better. And so, as I tell a lot of people, you only get one chance to be first. That's a good point. And so this is the first ever urban and community forest sustainability standard. And I got to be a part of that process. And I'm really proud of what we have come up with. It's extremely comprehensive which is one of those challenges. You can have issues that are complicated and you can have issues that are complex. Complicated just means that it's hard. Complex means not only is it hard, but it's really hard. (laughs) And urban and community forestry is that because you're dealing with all of these huge, hopefully huge trees across the country in close proximity where more than 80% of us live. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the amazing things that trees do for us. They filter the air, they control stormwater, they add value to our properties, they help with the heat island effect, Mm -hmm. all of the things that we typically think of, but they also do amazing things for our health both physical and mental health, and we have the research to back that up. Well, there's also the dark side that when a storm or something comes through and that big entity falls down, it can cause a lot of damage and can cause death. So we spend a lot of time talking about how great they are, but we also have to minimize the risks in order to maximize the benefits that we get from them. And so that's what makes it such a complex subject. And so our standard is set up so that there are objectives. So we've got 16 objectives that give you an idea about the the 16 things that you need to be thinking about kind of from a, a, a general topic idea. Then we drill down a little bit into performance measures, which get a little bit more specific. And then for each of those performance measures, there is an indicator that you have to meet to meet the standard. We have over 100 indicators in this standard. Wow. The only other thing that the sector has really had that has been very, very successful and is a a program of one of our named partners on this from Arbor Day Foundation is Tree City USA. They've also added Tree Cities of the World, Tree Line for the utilities, Tree Campus for schools, those kinds of things. But Tree City USA has four requirements. We have moved it up to 100 plus. Wow. So it is a significantly bigger lift. Yeah. It's not something that everybody is going to want to get certified to. But the standard itself is published on our website. Everybody at no cost can utilize the standard to evaluate and improve their program. 
And that is a really, really powerful development. I like to talk about 2023 as what I think historically we're going to look back at it as an inflection point in urban and community forestry with the standard that we've developed, with the unprecedented investment that is being made into urban and community forestry through the Inflation Reduction Act. It's going to be kind of like 1990-91, where things change drastically for the better for all of us, because that's where we live. I mean, it's amazing how much impact we are able to have on people just by changing the world a little bit, where they live, where they go to school, where they work. It's important. Yeah, it's a win. Uh, I do have a question on that. So these standards, who is using it? Are these cities? Are these communities, neighborhoods? Is it businesses? Like how, who can go out and get these standards? Like where does that level lie? Yeah, because I, I live downtown Minneapolis. You know, I can just look out my window and there's a lot of trees. I don't know if you've ever been here. It's a very green city. Oh, yeah. Yes, love that about it. So, yeah, who who owns those? Who's in charge of those? I guess I never really thought of that. All the above. So we have intentionally kept our scope wide. Being urban forestry, of course, municipalities, counties are a natural potential user of the standard. But in many parts of the world, a small proportion of the urban forest is actually owned and managed by the municipality. Most of it is privately owned. Varies from area to area. Here in Austin, Texas, the city actually has an outsized ownership of urban forest because of some preserved lands and some other areas that they manage for other primary purposes. But in most places, we're looking at only about 20% of the urban forest is owned by the municipality. And so I'm looking forward to the healthcare facilities. The Cleveland Clinic was one of our pilot projects as we were developing the standard. I look forward to that first corporate campus. I, I like to think big. And so whether it's a, a Tesla, an Apple, a Microsoft, they all have sustainability goals. They have ESG reporting that they do for those that are publicly traded in particular. And so a lot of that is about the supply chain and our traditional standards are used for that extensively. But what are they doing where they're headquartered? What are they doing where their workforce is located? And so this will give them an opportunity to hopefully recognize what they're already doing, maybe encourage them to do a little bit more. And more importantly, they can prove through this third-party certification that they are doing what the sector thinks is important. That's super cool. Uh, and so I think it's one of those, a single family residential property could get certified if they wanted to. Now, there are expenses. If you have to hire somebody to come out and audit what you're doing, I don't think that's going to be likely, but we didn't want to draw any artificial lines. So Taylor, if you have 10 trees and Logan, you only have nine trees and we set that number at 10, how do I say, oh, well, you have to go plant a tree before you can get certified. Yeah. So we didn't do anything like that. We didn't make a minimum area in terms of acres or hectares. And so really just trying to keep it as accessible for as many people uh, and organization types as possible. So SFI, 
Do they, is it this like a global initiative that people all across the world can tap into and do they, or is this kind of more locally used here in the U.S.? SFI ourselves, we are based out of Washington, D.C. and Ottawa, Canada. And so we primarily focus on North America, but we are part of PEFC. And so PEFC is a global organization that is working within this standards realm also. And so we are a, a significant portion of that efforts. You may have heard of one of the other standards out there. FSC is another organization mm-hmm. that is similar to what we're doing. However, I will point out that they don't seem to be interested in or haven't engaged in the urban forestry world yet. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it really is something that is available for our, a large number of people across the world. Very cool and important. So one of the things you mentioned earlier were things like the heat island effect as well as you know greenhouse gases, carbon. So when it comes to like a city, can you explain... I guess, explain what the heat island effect is, explain how carbon emissions, I mean, we know how that impacts global warming, but can you expand on how urban forestry can help manage these issues? The urban heat island effect, of course, is where it's warmer in town than it is outside of town. That's for a number of reasons. So we have actual heat sources in town, vehicles, buildings themselves do produce. I mean, when you're running your air conditioner to cool it off inside, That is just an energy transfer, and you're actually removing that heat from inside the building and putting it outside. Not only that, but all of the hardscape, the roadways, the buildings themselves, sidewalks, absorb the energy from the sun and then re-radiate that energy back out. So when the sun goes down, that hardscape is warming the area around it. So our cities are warmer than they are outside of town. That does a lot of things, including affect things like air quality, those kinds of things. In addition, you also just have the, the, the carbon issue and greenhouse gases. And the miracle of trees is photosynthesis. Trees are condensed air. So if you could magically go out there and create a technology that could reach out here and grab the air and condense it down into carbon, you would make an awful lot of money. (laughs) Trees do it naturally with very little additional resources needed. So they affect things like the urban heat island effect, not only by the shade that they cast, but the transpiration of water, the evaporation of water through the trees physically cool the air. That's why it's cooler under the shade of trees than it is under the shade of awnings. And when you go to a restaurant or whatever during the summer and you want to sit out on the patio and they have the misters going, yeah, they are trying to mimic what trees Jeez. do naturally and silently. I, you just blew my mind there. Yeah, I, like, me too. had never, like, I know that. Yeah. Like, I can feel that. <laughs> I've never thought about why that is a thing, that an awning or an umbrella just does not feel as great as sitting under a tree. Wow. Amazing. That, that was sweet. Yeah. Oh. I think I think I saw both of us go, yeah. Oh, huh. yeah, at the same yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I said I like to teach, right? Yeah, uh, you're doing a clearly, great job. Yeah, we love it. These are the kind of things that we're all specialists in our own field. Right. And we don't 
even if we have a broad breadth of knowledge, we may not be able to connect point A with point C because we don't have any reason to think about point B. Exactly. Yeah, no, I couldn't say it better myself. That was great. To your point of trees condensing carbon, I think I I heard this figure uh, yesterday, actually, that trees by mass are 50% carbon. Is that correct? Actually, it's higher than that, probably closer to 80%. So photosynthesis, just real quick, is that radiant energy of the sun is shooting at the earth and plants are naturally sitting out there using chlorophyll to grab that energy and transform that radiant form of energy into sugar, glucose, C6H12O6. So they take water and carbon dioxide, turn it into sugar, which is now a chemical form of energy. That energy can be transported so they can send it down to the roots so that the roots can grow. They can store it in the branches, the trunk, the roots of that plant. And then the other side of photosynthesis is respiration. That's where they physically tear that sugar molecule apart to release energy, just like we do when we metabolize the food that we eat. And so it's that process of turning sunlight into sugar that then gets turned into more complicated sugars called starch, which become the wood themselves. So a significant portion of that that weight of that tree is carbon other than the water that's also there. And so that's where you probably, depending upon if you're looking at dry wood or wet wood, could vary between that 50% or 80% carbon number. That's fascinating. Okay, you've also mentioned storage of water. I think a often under-recognized issue within cities that have a lot of asphalt, concrete, all that stuff, is the role trees play in water retention. So can you talk about the importance of trees when it comes to stormwater, especially in a place like, you know, Florida or these areas that do just get beaten down by a lot of rain? Most areas have stormwater management systems. Some have to be a lot bigger. It may be more important. You also have areas, particularly along the East Coast, that have what's called a combined sewer stormwater overflow system. And so there, there, there's some additional problems that happen if you get too much water too fast. And trees do a great job of two things, slowing the water down and helping that water infiltrate into the ground. So if you just have a concrete slab out there, all of the water essentially that hits it is going to run off into the stormwater system. If you have a tree that is hanging over that concrete slab, a significant portion of that water is going to, the first little bit is going to get captured by the tree itself. So just the water hanging on to the tree. And then what does drip through is dripping through at a slower rate. And so rather than having a big surge of water, you have a much longer, slower increase of water. So it's easier for most systems to be able to manage. On the other hand, if that tree is over a a permeable surface, now all of a sudden that water can actually help infiltrate into the ground with the help of the tree. So some of that water that hits the leaves actually rolls down the branch to the trunk of the tree and then down into the ground. 
the root systems of the trees themselves are helping open up pathways and, and help to kind of manage the compaction of that soil to be able to also get more water into the ground itself. So you can have a reduction in the speed of that stormwater runoff and the amount of the stormwater runoff. Wow. <laughs> I know. I feel like I, I, I felt I had a good knowledge on trees and like their role in our ecosystem. I am learning. I am not <laughs> by any means close to an expert in this, but... <laughs> Yeah, that was awesome. I'm loving it. Another issue here, I'll, I'll set up a local example that we've been facing, is we have a lot of ash trees around the cities. And lately, we've gotten run over by emerald ash borer, the invasive species. So a lot of the trees around the city have been getting cut down. Now, I, as just you know, a concerned citizen, have you know been going about the city and been thinking, oh my gosh, why are they cutting all these trees down? Where are they going? But then I took my class to visit this facility and I want to give them a shout out. They're called Wood from the Hood and they purchase these trees from the city and other municipalities and turn them into wood products, furniture, tables, etc. Can you kind of expand on whether or not like that's kind of a normal system and so that as a concerned citizen when you're watching this tree being cut down, is there any sort of sanctity of mind in knowing that there's a end product that's waiting for it and it's not just being burned, thrown in a landfill or something like that? Unfortunately, not in enough areas. And this is one that I'll come back to the standard to illustrate a little bit. So one of our objectives is all about disaster readiness, response, and recovery. Emerald ash borer, invasive insect, is one of many types of natural disasters that we can experience. Wildfire, hurricanes, tornadoes, ice storms, there's a lot. And so organizations, communities need to plan for and be prepared for these kinds of issues. So that's one thing that we include within the standard is they have to work on these kinds of things. And then another objective in the standard is urban and community forest wood utilization. So what do you do with in some areas, a significant portion of that woody resource is going into a waste stream? Not as much as there were just a few decades ago, but in many cases, we're not maximizing that benefit. It's not turning into furniture and art and those kinds of things. In a lot of areas, it becomes mulch, which is one of the best things that you can do for a living tree is to put a layer of mulch underneath it and more naturally approximate what it would be like in a natural woody setting. Mm -hmm. it, it's pre-dirt, as anyone who's tried to mulch, and then the next year goes, where did it all go? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, which is good news because that means you've got decent soil there's some health there, so there breaks down, but it also limits the time frame in which that carbon is locked up. So that decomposition process is faster and releases that carbon more quickly. There are other areas that are looking at and working on things like turning those woody waste materials into a, a biochar. So that is a form of carbon that is a much longer 
lasting form of carbon, also great for soil health, those kinds of things. And then you've got some areas that are also using their woody waste into the compost process, again, speeding up that decomposition process, but not enough of us are really doing a great job of connecting the artisans and the users of woody material with those end uses with the urban lumber. In many cases, because traditionally they didn't want to run the risk of running a log through their sawmill because urban trees are more likely to have metal or uh, concrete, those kinds of things in them. But we are getting better and better technology to be able to deal with a lot of those. Uh, and so, yes, that's that's one of the goals of the standard is to help complete that circle or that cycle so that we are getting it kind of all the way from the seed through the good living portion of that tree's life to eventually turning it into something that has the highest use possible. Mm-hmm. I think you bring up a great point and uh, it makes me think of the waste hierarchy. So I, I think everyone's familiar with reduce, reuse, recycle. Especially when it comes to trees, I would say compost and recycle are same level. It's kind of the same deal. But then the next rung below would be waste to energy. So incinerating the tree for to capture energy out of it. How often are these trees, when they do reach the end of life, are they just being burnt for power, or do they ever end up in a landfill? There are some areas that they have really a lot less of that because there are things like mulch and compost that are a higher use and compete pretty well with the cost avoidance of not having to send it to a landfill. But yeah, there there are probably still a few areas where some that green waste does end up in landfills. Yeah, I know here that in Minneapolis, we have waste to energy utilization or heat, I believe, too. So yeah, I, I'm glad we have things like wood in the hood or wood from the hood because yeah, then I'm sure our trees would go there as well or probably... St. Paul does use wood as their primary source of fuel for one of their energy facilities. Well, there you go. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So if how would cities that may not be as green, you know, going forward, start to develop more green space? And even if it's not a major park, start, you know, lining their streets with trees. What does that process look like? And what role would someone like SFI play in that? So hopefully we're one of those motivations. So not only have we given them that roadmap or that recipe for what they should pay attention to. Hopefully there will be some incentive in order to get certified and be able to tell their voters, to tell their workers, shareholders that we care about you. And we show that in part by how we care about our urban forest. But we're also looking at ways of being able to connect these different networks. I've been president of the International Society of Arboriculture serve in a lot of different ways within this realm because it is so important that we are working collaboratively. And I think that's really part of what brought me here is that at SFI, the mission is to advance sustainability through forest-focused collaboration. And that 
view of forest focus is expanding as we learn more. And it's really all about managing those benefits and values from those sustainably managed forests, no matter where they live. So connecting the the traditional forestry world with the urban forestry world more tightly and making sure that we have resources to be able to do the work that is necessary. There are a lot of really great people working in that urban wood utilization realm. They served on our development task group, just like it's important to have diversity in the urban forest because if all you have are ash trees, well, emerald ash borer comes in and it wipes out a significant portion of your urban forest. So you want to have ash and maple and oak, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's the same in an urban forestry program. We need diversity of people, both gender and race and age and geographic location, but also in terms of area of service. And so we had municipalities represented, we had universities represented, we had different nonprofit groups, including the conservation realm, as well as those that do the hands-on work. We had the states represented. And so by, by having a really broad group of people help develop the standard, we have something that is very comprehensive for this complex issue. And not only that, but we've put together a guidance document for those organizations that may care a lot, but haven't quite reached that that meeting the standard level for individual performance measures or indicators. And so we've provided examples, we've provided additional recommendations, tools that exist out there. iTree is one of those tools. iTree is a combined effort between the federal government and state and private actors to create a science-based tool to be able to put value to our trees and urban forests for things like stormwater mitigation or carbon sequestration, all of those things. And so the more we can do to help people understand all of the many connections that are out there between the trees in our urban forests and the things that they and their voters or shareholders care about, and then give them an idea of how to deal with that is really, really helpful. You'd mentioned involving a lot of different people. And I feel like, and again, I'm not a forestry expert, but from what I've learned, a a common theme that I seem to notice is a lot of what modern forestry is quote unquote discovering is what Native American populations have been doing for centuries, millennia. What is the involvement of those populations in coming up with these standards? Our very first objective is all about community and people and indigenous participation. It is a big push on our side to involve all people. And those traditional ways of knowing can absolutely inform what we do and what we don't do. And in many cases, help us look at how we want to do something differently than how we have traditionally done it. And so it is a requirement within that standard to not only involve the appropriate indigenous peoples, 
but also to make sure that we are recognizing their rights. There's a lot of nuance there, and we do have the resources to be able to help with that. We've worked in this portion of the sector in our traditional forestry side also, and so looking for more opportunities to expand the network and increase that ability. I know that the Arbor Day Foundation was one of the 12 national pass-through partners for the IRA funding that's coming through like we are. And they have a specific request from the U.S. Forest Service to designate a portion of those resources for tribes. And so making sure that we are able to do things to involve them is very, very important. I love when you talk about urban forestry as a term because when I am driving through cities, and like Logan said, we have a very green city here in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. Lots of trees everywhere. I don't think I've ever equated them to be being a forest, right? Like I've never quite put those words together. Like they are trees and I know they're super important, but to think of it as like a whole ecosystem and a forest type thing, has that been an education part that we've needed? Like the SFI has definitely like tried to push through of like getting people to understand that they are connected and they are all working together as an ecosystem. Because I feel like, yeah, like you own your backyard and you have your 10 trees and your neighbor has their 10 trees and you don't understand that their 10 trees are part of, you know, and your 10 trees are part of a whole forest of the neighborhood because it's so, we've individualized ourselves in our society. So has that been a major push for SFI to try to like educate on that front of like seeing it in that way? It is starting to be. It has been for the sector as a whole. I think that a lot of people look at the term urban forestry as an oxymoron. They, <laughs> they don't seem to go together. I was part of a focus group once on this issue, and that was one of the, the biggest challenges that those participants saw is it's not common vernacular. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there is more and more emphasis on that. The challenge is that it's really tough to fundraise for that portion of the message. It's really easy to get people excited about planting trees. And you can always come up with resources to buy trees, get volunteers out to plant those trees. A little bit more challenging to come up with the resources to actually do that long-term management. The growing and planting of trees is a very short blip in hopefully a very long lifetime of that tree. And so that is one of those challenges from a marketing standpoint, from an education standpoint. Everybody wants to go to education first. It's my opinion that somebody has to care before you can educate them. Right. And so it takes a certain level of marketing. And it's not like Pepsi or Coke have to raise their profile for people to know what Pepsi and Coke are. They do advertising because it works. If you're in front of somebody seven times, you're more likely to care about that than if you're not. And so that's that's the side that personally, I think we've got to figure out a good way of doing a better job. And one of the reasons why I'm here with you is that this is part of not only the education, but also just the marketing of trees, urban forests, 
And that intersection between the outside natural world and our built environment that is so important for more people to at least understand that there is value there and therefore be as willing to call City Hall and say, we need to do better, just like they call to complain about a pothole in the road. And so that's that's the kind of thing that we're working on. Oh, I love that. Thinking the whole time, I was just like, I, I don't think I've really, I've heard of that term, obviously, but like never really truly internalized it as I'm like driving through. And like my property has a ton of trees on it. And I think of it as my little mini forest for sure. But yeah, it's definitely part of the whole, whole bigger ecosystem of the cities. Yeah, no, thank you. And to tie to another part of SFI. So we've talked a lot about standards today, but SFI has four pillars. So standards is one, but we also have a community pillar, which is all about expanding the community and the network of SFI and all of our associated organizations. We also have a conservation pillar, trying to figure out how can you rigorously determine what the impacts are of our standards, all of the organizations that we're working with, and the other things that we do. And then we have an education pillar, which is all about that lifetime of learning, including career pathways. So the great thing about urban forests are those urban forests have to be cared for. And that care means jobs. One of the biggest pinch points right now, we've got a a 1.5 billion dollars of new money coming into urban and community forestry in the U.S. through our states, through organizations like SFI, Arbor Day, American Forest, and others, all coming from the the IRA funding, we were already in a labor shortage. And so this is just going to magnify that. And so one of the things that we do is that Career Pathways program, getting people ready and matching up great people with great jobs and helping make sure that everybody is represented. The other thing that we haven't talked about a lot here yet is the whole equity issue. So we know that areas with less trees tend to be areas where there are people of color and areas that have less resources available. Well, with the connection between trees, and human health, that means that it's part of the public health crisis. So those that need a great environment the most don't have it because of Mm -hmm. things historically like redlining, where areas were outlined and investments were not allowed in those areas. So absolutely racism, a big part of that. And so trying to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that the urban forests are good and strong across the city. And what that means is that in some cases, all of the different districts of a city may not get equal investment Mm -hmm. because some are those that already have. And so we're going to have to deal with some of those political issues of we're going to have to be able to concentrate efforts in those areas that really need them the most. And therefore, there are potentially going to be voters that feel left out because they're not getting this new investment. 
which which makes for a political issue, which raises that issue of education and marketing even more so because it's a real issue and not a lot of people know it. I, I love all of the urban heat island studies that are going on out there. I'm like, you don't have to. It's important to do them, I know. But you don't <laughs> actually have to do the study because I've yet to find a study that shows where the hottest parts of the city are that don't also have the lowest concentration of trees. <laughs> yeah. So you can look at a canopy map, yeah. which yeah. Google has for almost all communities across the U.S. Yeah. Right. for free. You can look at that canopy map and see, oh, we don't have trees here. That's going to be, be hot. Yeah. <laughs> Airports, because of the interaction between airplanes and birds and the fact that trees are habitats for birds, airports tend to have very low canopy coverage. Well, they also happen to be really big hot spots on any kind of heat zone map. Imagine that. There, yeah. there, there are a lot of things that are just logical connections once you start thinking about them. And you can take that $100,000 that you were going to put into a study Right. And actually turn that into planting and caring for the trees in those areas that need them the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd go along a long ways on that front instead of just more data that you can visually see. Yeah. You talked about students, so maybe talk about them first, but also just people who are generally interested in forests and urban forestry and liking trees. How can these groups get more involved with forestry, even if it's not their full-time job? Well, first off, I would say, come to us. So you can totally just go to forest.org slash urban standard, get the urban standard. I've got uh, some explanation videos on there. We've got uh, all sorts of resources, including that guidance document. Share this new tool with the sustainability office at your community. Share it with the mayor, the city council. Let people know that there are ways to do even better than what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, we've done a lot of ground up work. And so we work with the people that are actually planting and caring for the trees, work with the city forester or the urban forester if there is one. But my goal here in large part is to try to work a little bit more top down while others are working bottom up so that if the chief sustainability officer or the mayor says, here, I found this, this looks really cool. Things are actually going to happen. Whereas if it works the other way up and the city arborist or the city forester comes up and says, here, I've got this new tool. Can we find the resources for it? It takes a lot longer for things to happen. For students, get involved, volunteer. Arbor Day Foundation has a program called Alliance for Community Trees, which is a network of all of the nonprofits that are working with and on the tree issue. And so most areas have a nonprofit that is working in this realm. Also, the Keep America Beautiful affiliates, Keep Texas Beautiful, Keep Minneapolis Beautiful, they, they are widespread another good group that is really interested in this area. I think a lot of the Keep America Beautiful affiliates are more tightly identified with the recycling issue. 
But trees and urban forestry is one of the three things that they tend to focus on. So yet another outlet for that. And if you want a job, reach out to us, reach out to the core network. There's a lot of really great opportunities to find your niche. And I have been at the top of a 90-foot lift working on a tree. I've been on a rope and a saddle harness climbing in the trees, but you don't have to be interested in that part. Geographic information systems and technology are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the management of what we do. Information is vitally important. And with an urban forest, information tied to the geography is really important. So if you are interested in this area, and yet you're not that outdoorsy person that goes rock climbing on the weekends, that's okay. We have opportunities for you too, including those of you that are interested in the arts, education, pretty much anything that you do or are interested in, I can help you connect that to the urban forest and find a way to be able to have what at least I've been fortunate enough to consider a really great career. Perfect. Hit them up, guys. Yeah. This conversation has been just so pleasant. Fascinating. Yeah. And enlightening. Yeah. This has been really fun. I want to let people know where they can find you as well as the standards one last time. And then we will sign off. All right. So my email address is really, really easy. It's paul.johnson at forest.org. I love the fact that we have such a simple URL. You can find all about urban and community forestry and our standard at forest.org slash urban standard. And on social media, you can also tend to find me at Treevangelist. I've been uh, accused of preaching about trees before. So my <laughs> wife gave me the handle a while ago. <laughs> More active on Instagram than some of the others at this point. I used to be active on Twitter, but uh, not, not so much <laughs> currently. Yeah. <laughs> but really happy to work with anybody. You can find me on LinkedIn, lots of different places like that. And please, let's, let's all work together to do a better job. Because as I like to say, trees are key to healthier, happier, and safer communities. I love it. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us. I appreciate all of this. It's been so wonderful. Wonderful. Appreciate it, Taylor, Logan. This was a lot of fun.